Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Peter Thilly to talk about his new book, The Opium Business, A History of Crime and Capitalism in Maritime China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Peter, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, it's such an um, exciting thing for me to be here. I've listened to this channel for, for so many years and um, really appreciate the work that you all do. Of course. So with that, um, thanks for listening, incidentally. Um, why don't we start at the beginning with your beginning? So how did you come to work on Chinese history and the history of modern China in particular? Um, sure. Yeah. So as, you know, as I mentioned, I've listened to a lot of these and I say it's sort of a twist on, on a, on a standard kind of, uh, story that you, that you get here, sort of a, a good professor. Right. Um, but for me, I, I, I actually was a exchange student in Thailand in high school, uh, through the rotary program. Um, so I was in Northeast Thailand and Karat and Nakhon um, sort of the gateway to the Isan. And I, I loved it there. I, like, I learned Thai. I went back to Wisconsin um, where I was growing up, and I, I was able to take third-year Thai at the University of Wisconsin, but kind of wanted to not go to college where I grew up. Um, so I, I ended up uh, going to Wesleyan University in Connecticut um, and just sort of figuring that I had gotten that far in, in one tonal language, um, how hard could it be to do another one? And I think um, the answer was like really hard. <laughs> but uh, had really good professors, ended up being an East Asian studies um, major, um, really more focused on philosophy and religion. Like I did uh, my senior thesis was a translation of the Zhuangzi, the classic Taoist text. Um, and it was really after graduation that I kind of um, decided to turn to history. I'd taken a bunch of classes with Vera Schwartz at Wesleyan, a historian of the May 4th movement. Um, and anyways, uh, kind of ended up um, kind of realizing, so, so I'm, 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 my spouse is also a historian and we came to this from very different places. Um, her work's kind of very explicitly political. Uh, you know, she comes, um, at, at this kind of enterprise from a political place. And, and, and I think my politics is reflected in, in my book, but I sort of probably came to this because of a love of good stories, um, right, is the thing that I think that, that really initially attracted me to, um, to this project, to, you know, the, the project as an undergrad too. So um, I, I came to graduate school uh, at Northwestern kind of looking for interesting stories, I guess. <laughs> Fabulous. So your book, The Opium Business, is definitely filled with good stories. It's filled with many good stories, if I could say that. Um, well, uh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> it is centered on the opium trade in coastal southern Fujian province. And it really is, this is sort of why I say it's filled with many good stories. It really is a social history, one that looks at the relationship between state and local business in the context of the opium trade. So through your book, we follow opium from its start as contraband, its transformation to a tax staple, and then as it becomes a prohibited commodity for warlords, colonial states, the Kuomintang, and the Japanese occupation government. Um, so there's lots of stories, lots of sources. And through your book, I think we really see a different history of opium than one, you know, than, than has been typically told. Um, so I'm hoping you could sort of ground and give listeners a sense of this difference. So how are you with your book engaging with, you know, existing scholarship on opium in China? And where does your book sort of depart from what already is out there? Um, yeah, good, good question. And, and thank you for the generous framing. Um, so the way I see it is, I, I, I wasn't kind of attacking what I saw as like a scholarship that was wrong about things. But rather that there's this kind of flattened 
timeline, right? Where we have um, we have we have kind of general ideas about opium in China that don't seem to distinguish between what was happening in the 1830s and what was happening in like the 1920s, right? And and so one thing like that was the kind of the first thing I wanted to do was like give a legible timeline, which you just recreated kind of at the um, at the beginning um, just now, right? Um, that that kind of shorthand was like if 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 nothing else is of value in this book, hopefully I can offer that to the field, like a a, a long you know hundred year timeline of of opium's history in China. It sort of disaggregates some of that history and the different legalities and some of the dynamics during those different periods. So that was one area where I really wanted to um, kind of contribute something. Now a lot of the scholarship either is kind of about the 1830s and 1840s and these British, uh, you know, companies bringing, bringing opium to China from India and that moment and the opium war and the sort of diplomacy around the opium war, especially focused on that. And then there's a lot of scholarship on prohibition in the early 20th century, um, especially. Um, all of it really good, um, but none of it kind of answering the questions that I wanted to have the answers to, which is like, you know, how, how, how did people make their money, um, buying and selling opium and, and like, what was the relationship between their business and the state? And like, how did that relationship change over time from the, that moment of illegality in the 1830s when the trade blew up to, to the 1920s and 1930s? Um, like, you know, things must've changed over time. So like, what, what's the story there? Um, so that's that's kind of where I saw myself fitting in. Absolutely, and in terms of the 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 you know the story and things changing over time, um, you mentioned sort of you know the the temporal scope, and there's also sort of a really interesting, especially towards the later part of the book, um, an interesting reversal in terms of the flow of opium. So when you get to the later chapters, um, you're really talking and showing how China. Um, you know, China's place in the global drug trade, because it is global, is sort of reversed and opium is now flowing from China <laughs> elsewhere, which is a real difference. You're talking about difference there from the way that things look um, in the 1830s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's sort of, you know, I think the one you mentioned is sort of like uh, an example of, of things that were surprising. And it's like, I feel a little silly saying it's surprising, because if you are a person who studies Southeast Asian history, you like know that opium was smuggled from China into Southeast Asia, right? It's not like I discovered that or something. But as, as somebody who came up in the China field, it's just never been a part of the conversation about opium. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So one of the other things, um, at least to me, that made your, you know, reading it made your book so distinct is the real sense of place that comes through and the importance of place. Um, so this book is really focused on um, southern Fujian. And this, you know, because this location so dominates the stories that you are able to tell and that you tell in the book, I was hoping you could introduce it, you know, perhaps for listeners who are a little more unfamiliar <laughs> with Fujian. So where do we find ourselves in this book? Where is Fujian? What do we need to know about it to sort of understand um, the, the history that this book tells? Sure. Um, so the the place itself is is coastal southern Fujian, really kind of the the county surrounding the major city of Xiamen, um, which is directly across the strait from Taiwan. Um, it's kind of the the next biggest port north um, from from Chaozhou, which is the next biggest port north from from Guang, uh, from from Hong Kong. Right. So it's you know it, it's it's on the southeast coast and and it has this kind of noisy history within the archives, you know, if you, if you're searching for opium, right. So, so part of the, you know, I got, I got sort of drawn there in part because of the sources in the 1830s, it was sort of this secondary market from, from Canton, from Guang, uh, Guangzhou. Um, and it really kind of the story is about, uh, as, as I discovered over time, I mentioned, you know, I'd been an exchange student in Thailand and I was kind of looking for ways to, connect Chinese history and Southeast Asian history. And I embarked on this project not expecting to do that. Um, and and Fujian kind of really offered me a way um, to think about that, right? To think about um, connections between China and Southeast Asia and this place that, you know, I describe in the introduction as kind of 
half um, Mediterranean hub, uh, sort of having a dual identity of a, a Mediterranean hub and a and a and a kind of um, a dangerous frontier, right? Where it's it's really cosmopolitan. There's all this kind of interaction with all these other places and other cultures, but also it's kind of viewed with suspicion. Um, by the Qing state, going back to the foundation of the Qing state. And really that, that sort of suspicion never goes away, right? All the kind of secret society uprisings and this kind of anti-Mantuism stuff really, really stuck around um, in Fujian in ways that it might not have, I think, in, in other places. So it has kind of all that going on, right? Maritime trade, uh, a tense relationship with the central state. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, per- Thank you for that. I think you describe it as a volatile <laughs> maritime frontier, just to give a sense of that. You know, it's always on the edge. It could always tip over <laughs> into into um, violence and disorder. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the 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 initial conquest of the whole region, right, was, was forcibly moved people inland from the coast, um, which is when you think about it, just. Um, genocidal, right? Like uh, it's 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 bonkers, sort of what people went through in the in the 17th century um, in this region, and the the kind of legacies uh, of that um, really uh, sort of play out, I think, throughout um, the 18th and 19th century. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, with that, thank you for setting that up. So, why don't we dive into the chapters of your book itself? So, the first three are. Um, you know, really, I suppose, strictly chronological in, in some ways. They are framed around the changes in the legal context for buying and selling opium. Um, so chapter one, local foundations, 1832 to 1839, looks at the 1830s, um, and it explores the coastal opium trade, which is dominated by a receiving ship system um, that really uh, you know, depended on local brokers. Um, so you hinted at it a little bit, I think, just a moment before. But could you explain this system a little bit? What does it sort of, you know, look like <laughs> to buy and sell opium um, in the 1830s? And who did it involve? Yeah. Um, so prior to, say, 1832 or so, um, all of the opium that came to China from India on British shipping, at least, um, was wholesaled offshore at this island called Linton um, near Hong Kong, near present-day Hong Kong. And so they set up this system there originally, where these, you know, they basically take their oldest, biggest ships that they don't want to like try to sail anywhere anymore, and use them as warehouses. Uh, for opium and silver. So opium coming from India and then the silver, you know, in in exchange for that. And so that starts in the Pearl River Delta, um, you know, right, right next to Hong Kong. Um, And after the East India Company's monopoly dissolves, these firms, Jardine Matheson and Company, Dent and Company, some other firms start realizing that, well, you know, like, a lot of the people coming to Linton to buy opium are these Fujianese traders, traders from coastal southern Fujian, big maritime houses doing business in Southeast Asia, doing business in North China, in Tianjin, in Shanghai, in Taiwan, in Zhejiang. So, right, these big, big players um, are buying lots and lots of opium at at Linton, um, maybe. Uh, you know, we, Jardine Matheson or Denton Company, can get an edge by uh, by meeting them up where they live, um, going up the coast a little bit and setting up there. And so, um, the the first chapter kind of tells the story of of how that happened through through one one of the major players in that this lineage, um, the sure lineage of Yakov Village, who. Um, worked kind of hand in hand with the captains of the Jardine Matheson uh, opium ships to set up uh, anchorages. Um, so there are kind of three or four major anchorages, one right near Xiamen, um, one in this little bay called Shenhu Bay, where the sure lineage lived to the north of Xiamen, and then one in the harbor of Quanzhou, a medium-sized kind of uh, older uh, maritime city. And you know, I think one of, one of the things that was really interesting to me as I sort of plotted this out on a map is like, well, there's a huge naval garrison in Xiamen, like in sight of these anchorages. Um, and Chenzhou has all these government officials just like 
how did how did they do this? Like, what was how how did this get worked out? Right, like it's so blatant. Um, there's so much money involved. Um, and when you kind of dig into the sources, and I have some stories in there, it's like you know, twenty six thousand dollars for six months, just a bribe, you know, a six month bribe for the rights to use this bay, and and uh, boatmen are are making like maybe three dollars a month for context, um, twenty six thousand. Um, so it's just a huge, huge amounts of money, and it's all kind of right there out in the open. And so I, I found that very fascinating. So sort of pe- piecing through the Qing sources about arresting, you know, some members of that lineage and, and British sources, the Jardine Matheson sources about kind of um, doing business with those same people and, and kind of piecing together what, what happened. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Absolutely. And you, um, you followed this, you know, as you said, this is sort of setting us up in the 1830s, and we follow the chronology to look at what happens to opium next in chapter two, which is titled Negotiated Illegality, 1843 to 1860. And some of what you just described, actually a large part of what you just described sort of holds true for this period. Um, but there are, as you as you outline um, in this chapter, a few changes. So more people are becoming involved in the trade, which, as you just indicated, um, was hugely profitable. You know, vast sums of money are involved in it. Uh, but we see here in this chapter those same or increasingly vast quantities of money working their way across industries and into state finances. Um, we see in this chapter more foreign merchants being involved, in, especially in the wake of various treaties um, in ports. Um, and local Chinese merchants taking on greater and greater shares of the business, especially as domestic opium comes to really saturate um, the market. But the opium import business did, as you show in this chapter, really remain largely the same with the same offshore receiving ship system that you just introduced us us to um, staying there, even while the illegality of opium was um, experimented with. Shall we put it? Uh, but I was hoping actually that you might talk about one of those experiments. So one of the things that this chapter touches on is a three-month period where um, the British become tax farmers. Um, so this is a fascinating episode. <laughs> it fascinated me. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about this? What what happened in those three months? Um, how did this, as you call it, this historical anomaly come to be? And sort of why? <laughs> What is going on with the British tax farmers? Yeah, I was I, I found this one really fun and kind of surprising. So so yeah, it, uh, after eighteen forty three, um, the opening of the five treaty ports, you know, the Treaty of Nanjing, it doesn't it doesn't mention opium. It doesn't it doesn't legislate it in any way. And the and the um, the consuls, the British consuls, don't exactly know what they're supposed to do about it, and the. Ch- Qing officials don't exactly know what they're supposed to do about it. And so this sort of haphazard deal works out in the, and it works differently in each of the ports. And I don't, you know, touch on, on um, uh, the other locations, you know, in Shanghai, there, there are these boats that kind of stayed in the river pretty close to the main port, but in most of the Southern ports, they had, they basically kept the old stations alive, these old received ship stations from the days when things were illegal, like completely and the reason was so they could try and tax legal commerce. They figured if, if there was a thing they couldn't tax, opium, mixed in with all the stuff they were supposed to be able to tax, like they'd never tax anything. And they were right about that, I think. Um, so they figured, you know, you guys just do do it out there. And and in places like Shenhou Bay and Quanzhou, which were not treaty ports and where British boats were not supposed to be, you know, they... They, they just worked out stuff with local officials and, and gave them kind of money the same way they've been doing it um, the past couple of decades. In the mid-1850s, things started to change. Um, you know, the Taiping um, Rebellion happens. 
in um, in Xiamen, uh, there's a small sword uprising, um, which I'm working on uh, for a second book we can talk about uh, towards the end. Um, but there's, you know, there's fundraising demands in, in the 1850s, right? After in, owing indemnities to these, to, to the British and, um, and the, this enormous uprising. And so they're looking for ways to, um, gather revenue and and opium's like very a very obvious choice you know there, it's clear local officials are already doing this on a kind of an informal basis and you know we can talk about the difference between bribery and taxation i think it's blurrier than people tend to recognize um but so there was some local kind of impetus for wanting to tax opium when the Qing court finally kind of gave the head nod about it. And, and you have all these really quickly in 1857, um, kind of various provinces submitting their proposals to tax opium in, in different ways. Um, and so it kind of starts in Shanghai uh, and, it, and it kind of cascades to the other places. And people don't know exactly what to do. And in Fuzhou, the provincial capital of Fujian, they're like, we're going to tax it seven times what they're taxing it in Shanghai um, and we'll really get them. Uh, and, and nobody pays the taxes and they just evade it. And so in Xiamen, they're trying to kind of sort this all out and they start talking to Jardine Matheson and the uh, various kind of opium importers. And they're like, Hey, can we just get together? And like, if you guys import 3000 chests of opium a year, maybe you pay taxes on 1500 of them <laughs> and we'll call it a day, but just like, give us that money, please. Um, so that's basically kind of what happened. And then Jardine Matheson, their, their agent just kind of worked the local Daotai over the circuit intendant over and over again, just negotiating them down on these monthly quotas to the point where they were not paying taxes on hardly anything for those three months even. But it was this sort of anomalous situation where, you know, I came into this first kind of being, um, really interested in this institution, the Chinese Maritime Customs, where you have, you know, Robert Hart and these British agents working to like standardize and centralize and like in, in and create this kind of vision of governance that they had for what China should be. And it's interesting to, that sort of at that same moment, there were also these British opium ship captains um, kind of uh, taking on the role of, of tax farmers, which is the sort of form of taxation that British consuls were constantly sort of railing against in China. Um, it's just sort of fun, right? And, and, and I, that whole conversation is also kind of made a little bit more silly, I think, by the fact that British colonies used tax farms liberally. <laughs> um, so there's this British, there's this notion among British consuls in China that it's like a particularly Chinese way of doing business that's unmodern or something like that. And yet um, the British colonies also do them. So uh, it's, it's a whole confusing whole story there with tax farming. <laughs> but it's it's a wonderful mix of the, that particular example of just sort of different commercial and administrative cultures really coming together and sort of um, blending. And I think you mentioned this, that, you know, at multiple points throughout the book, that what is happening in China is not particularly um, or at least not overly unique to China, as you mentioned, you know, tax farm, um, you know, opium farms, tax farming, the opium, you know, licenses and regulations and whatnot. That is something that's happening across <laughs> Southeast um, Asia in general. Um, and this is something that becomes even more so um, as opium becomes legal, as you just mentioned in 1857, and becomes taxed. And this is sort of a transformation that happens in chapter three. Uh, and you point out here that, you know, opium is a hugely important commodity. Um, it's China's you know, most valuable article of import. Um, and it's, you know, it amounts to some 10% of the total annual revenue on foreign trade. So it's a hugely important um, um, commodity and, you know, piece part of the trade. Um, at the same time, as you just mentioned, um, transport taxes are being levied on opium. And this is where Fujian comes in as a really interesting example. Uh, because as you just mentioned, the that you know, the transport tax on opium is so very high in Fujian, some six, seven times you know, higher than in neighboring provinces. Uh, so could you explain that a little bit? You know, why why is that the case? Why is it set so high? And what are the intended and unintended consequences mm -hmm. of that? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. This one sort of, it was like the, the my introduction to the project and, and I think kind of the last thing I was able to sort of figure out. It, it, it took me 14 years, I feel like, to to think this through. It's so, so yeah, the um, very beginning of graduate school, the, this murder of Frederick Blacklock was, with which I opened the chapter was the first um, kind of piece of evidence in the book, I guess, you know, it was the first thing I kind of found that got me going on this trail. And, and what I couldn't understand was, you know, why were people smuggling opium while it was legal? And why were the tax collectors British? <laughs> like, that was, you know, I was that new to this field. It's like, what is happening here? Um, and, and so the, the, the why of it is this confluence of, of various things. Um, Fujian is a really particular place. Um, as we mentioned before, you know, it has this dual identity, it has all these other things, but Fuzhou, the provincial capital, is a really sort of conservative politi- political culture and is the birthplace of the kind of anti-opium hero, Lin Zoshu, who was, you know, the, the guy who started the opium war, right? Um, he is, is from the kind of gentry of Fuzhou. And... There's this, I call it sort of political correctness in in that city, in the governing class, I think, that that like opium is terrible. And the way that the people who occupied um, these positions that that I think maybe you could think of as maybe potentially morally compromised, right? If if they if they want to get rid of opium, but they're also like taxing opium, it's it's a confusing position to be in, at least I would imagine. Um, and and so they sort of square that by arguing that to excessively tax opium will undermine the industry and cause it to go away, and solve short term problems with revenue. And that really kind of, I think that idea is, comes from various officials across China, um, Guo Songtao, um, uh, prominently. But like in in Fuzhou, there's two two guys in particular, Zuo Zongtang first, this um, really kind of prominent kind of self-strengthening official who never said a word about opium while he was ruling in, in Fujian as the governor general um and setting up the fuzhou naval yard and and earmarking opium taxes to be used every year for the building of the fuzhou naval yard and then he gets transferred to the the northwest to to set about trying to consolidate Qing rule in 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 Qinghai and gansu and places like that and he earmarks fujian opium funds to be sent to him up there for that project too and he doesn't say kind of a word about the opium business in Fujian in any of his public writings. You look for his writings about opium, it's all about how people, Muslims in the Northwest shouldn't be allowed to grow it. Um, and so I was trying to kind of figure out, figure this out, like, what did he think about it? You know, what did he think about it? What did Shen Baojun as the other official in Fuzhou, what did he think about it? Um, he, uh, a head of the Fuzhou Naval Yard, married to uh, the granddaughter or daughter of Lin Zushu, right? So he's married into that family. He's from that kind of anti-opium culture. He too uses an enormous amount of opium funds in his projects of the Fuzhou Naval Yard and later consolidating Qing rule in Taiwan. But he doesn't really talk about that. He doesn't talk about the source of that funding. So I think Right. If we're think, trying to explain why why the taxes were so much higher in this place, it was these officials realized the business was important, and their kind of politically correct approach was like, if opium's bad, this is the way to handle it, right? Um, by over taxing it, and so unintended consequences, right, is 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 really where the story's at because making opium revenue that important had a lot of a lot of consequences right it it made the people who bought and sold opium really vital to people who wanted to govern in in fujian um if you wanted to, if you were in charge of a city you needed a handle over the city's opium dens and you needed to tax them um because you're getting more out of that than than some of these other similar taxes like brothel taxes and gambling taxes so the dual kind of unintended, that's a sort of a global unintended consequences. Opium becomes more important to the state, right? And, and the opium business gets sort of entrenched um, in that way. 
locally, the other unintended consequence is smuggling, right? Where I kind of started the story of the murder of this customs officer by some smugglers is people trying to get opium past these various um, uh, taxation institutions. And, and so it sort of sets off what I call sort of a border war with Guangdong province, where um, uh, Chaozhou, uh, Shantou in, in eastern Guangdong and Xiamen in southern Fujian are, are neighboring cities just across the provincial border from each other. And, and it's kind of bonkers how the um, opium imports to the two cities change depending on the tax rates in the two provinces, so, such that in the 1870s, all of Xiamen's business kind of migrates south to, to Chaozhou. And then after 1880 or so, um, it, it re-shifts back to, to Xiamen because the Guangdong rate gets a little bit higher and the, the Fujian rate gets a little bit lower. So, so it's kind of tracking that, um, that history as well as like a, a way of kind of thinking through the unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's as you just sort of indicated, it it sounds, and I guess this is sort of what comes through. It's a very um, dynamic industry, and it's one that's very much responding to everything that's happening. Um, and you know, as you mentioned, there is a lot happening in China during this period of time. Um, yeah, it's that, a, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I know the no, like no. dynamic industry. I feel like you can't overstate that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's eighteen eighty the year that the the trade shifts from Shanto up to, to Xiamen. I think I think I, I, I was I was looking back at the book this morning to try and prepare. And it's something like 80 or 90 percent of that year's opium was imported in one day. Oh, wow. Uh, because of the tax change. It was like in January. They're like after January 31st, um, you know, the taxes are going up and, and mm-hmm. overnight the, the shop stayed open all night and. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of opium changed hands mm-hmm. um, to get it in in that window, which is just one example of how, you know, how much, right, just little shifts in policy can shift people's behavior, can shift these whole kind of networks. It's it's um, it's a it's a delicate, complicated ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's definitely the sense, as you said, it you know, can't be overstated. And that's even the case when opium becomes prohibited once again, right? That that dynamic <laughs> responding to the conditions, um, which is what really chapter four looks at. And actually what is what was really interesting to me at least was that um, that that um you know the interaction of the state <laughs> and opium remains here. So we have you show in this chapter how tax farming you know still really survived in this in the age of prohibition just in different forms. Uh, so this chapter picks up after 1906 when the Qing decided to prohibit opium once again. Um, and it looks at opium kings who used prohibition as a means to continue the trade. Uh, and you explore one opium king in particular, um, who I think crops up in all of the chapters we've talked about so far. He's sort of here and there, but this is sort of where um, we hear we get to know a little bit more about him. Um, Ye Qinghe, who lived an absolutely fascinating, colorful life, um, and who really seems to have made the most um, of the state prohibition infrastructure. <laughs> so thinking of dynamism and, and, and interactivity, um, could you tell us about him? What did he do? How did he make his living? Yeah, um, this guy. I, I've never been able to find a f- <laughs> photograph of him. If anybody does, anybody listening, um, send it to me. Um, yet, yet Xinghe. So he um, is born kind of right around the time of the Prohibition edicts um, in the you know first decade of the twentieth century. Um, I think he grows up in Gulangyu, this uh, the foreign concession island that's sort of in the Xiamen Harbor. Um, and he is this, as a sort of a teenager, he's this kind of a petty opium, um, this and that guy, right? Like his, his dad, I think has some businesses, uh, importing other things and he convinces his dad to kind of start, um, including opium and some of the shipments. Like we're going to, it's just sort of taking advantage of price irregularities. If it's cheaper in Shanghai, if you can buy it cheaper in Shanghai this month, buy it there and sell it in, in Fujian or in Southeast Asia. And really the Southeast Asia connection seems to be where he sort of starts to take off. At some point around 1920, he moves from Xiamen up to Shanghai. And um, 
indications are are that you know that's really where a lot of the the work is being done you know getting getting opium through various means a lot of times it's like persian opium opium from iran uh through various places like redirected at vladivostok or somewhere and these giant shipments and then also other drugs um getting uh so there's there's some telegraphs uh of his from 1922 1923 to turkey and uh europe um kind of inquiring about uh powder drugs you know morphine and heroin and cocaine um, which he's also i think sending to southeast asia so he's this kind of up and comer in shanghai and yes really the the first episode is just incredible um he he gets arrested in 1924 for stealing um, like two metric tons of of Persian opium from the Ezra brothers, Judah and Isaac Ezra, who are the nephews of Edward Ezra, who had been the head of the opium combine during the late Qing, kind of had these opium connections. And, and so they, they reported him, even though they were doing something, they weren't allowed to bring two tons of opium into Shanghai either. Like that was also illegal. Um, but they went ahead and sent the police on him and, you know, caught him in his, in his, um, apartment with that and all these telegraphs, which is why I kind of have his telegraphs to these European companies and stuff like that. And so he goes to jail for a year in the Shanghai foreign concession. Um, and then kind of by 1928, he is, he has, somehow made it from, you know, being in jail for that to being uh, an officer in the Jiangsu Opium Suppression Bureau, working under Du Yuesheng, the boss of the Green Gang. So this is where he kind of starts to understand, like, how you can really make money. Um, that that these giant opium suppression bureaus are are huge regional state monopolies and the, and the opportunities are endless, especially if you're flexible about legality, right. And you're, you can make money on both ends by operating it as a monopoly and also breaking your own monopoly in ways that are lucrative to you. So, so he sort of seems to get some experience there. He opens a bunch of pharmacies uh, in the Shanghai municipal archives. I was able to find the name of his accountancy firm, which kind of led me, gave me a little bit of an understanding of the different types of businesses that he set up. But it was a lot of pharmaceutical stuff, pharmaceutical import export companies and, and pharmacies that were, you know, accused in the newspapers of making morphine and red pills and heroin and all kinds of stuff like that. And in 1932, 1933, he gets in trouble in a couple of different ways. Um, there's a, a, a number of things happen. Uh, those Ezra brothers who he had robbed in 1924, he seems to be working with them um, now. And one of them, Judah Ezra, uh, gets arrested in San Francisco with a whole bunch of heroin that uh, Ye Ching-ho's fictional tea company had sent him. Um, so he was in partnership with the Ezra brothers shipping heroin to, to the United States, to the, um, to, to organize crime in the U S. Um, and the U S, um, investigators were looking for him in Shanghai. And right around that same time, the, uh, one of his morphine factories got busted. The, the rumor that, that I found in different sources was that it was just it was just a rival, right? Another, somebody else making morphine um, sent, sent the police uh, into his morphine factory to take out um, the competition. And so he, he was like arrested. He was going to get thrown in the um, International Settlements Jail. And he, he sort of pretended he was sick and went to the Sino-Foreign Hospital, Sino-Foreign Clinic, and escaped, jumped bail, and left. Shanghai at the precise moment when things in Fujian were getting totally insane. Um, this Fujian rebellion of 1933, something really, nobody's ever really written extensively about. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated to learn more about basically um, a, a, a movement for an independent Fujian that in Southern Fujian and Xiamen seems to be, kind of have some relationship to Japanese influence. All the implication there is that this is a Japanese plot to take over Fujian, but in, Fuzhou in the northern part of the province, it's it's led by the 19th Route Army, which is um, 
this kind of renegade unit that that crossed uh, Chiang Kai-shek in Shanghai a few years earlier and then decided they were going to have independent negotiations with the Chinese Communist Party and become an independent country in Fujian. So that's happening in Fujian. And Ye Qinghe escapes, jumps bail, escapes Shanghai and becomes basically the director of opium suppression for the 19th Army's new independent country of Fujian. <laughs> Um, and he, he starts importing all kinds of Persian opium uh, to set the 19th Root Army up, um, their dispensaries in Fuzhou and other places like that. But really, within a year, the Kuomintang have, have, have shut that down. So Ye Chenghe escapes Fuzhou with all of this opium that he purchased on behalf of a government that no longer exists and uh, goes down, takes it down to, to Xiamen and you know, it's like, how did this happen? Just sort of comes out of the out of the wilderness uh, to become the director of the Kuomintang's Opium Suppression Bureau for Southern Fujian um, for three, two and a half, three years. Um, and it seems very clear. The implication in all the sources is that it was a threat. It, he, he came, he was like, I have several metric tons of opium. Like, if you don't give me this job, I'm, I'm going to sell it anyways, right? Um but this, it, it, his story, I think, like, and this, uh, this interaction, it really sort of, it goes against, I think, a lot of what has been written about, like, the Kuomintang's opium plans, right? That I think that they've been understood as, as really successfully kind of emulating some of those Southeast Asian countries in creating a national opium monopoly. Um, and, and, the story of Fujian is like uh, on paper only, right? Like they hired a guy who, who did everything in his power to sell all kinds of other drugs, right? It wasn't, it, he, w- he was supposed to buy monopoly opium through the Guomindang, which he did dutifully, but then he also bought Persian opium and sold it. And he also made heroin and morphine and, and encouraged uh, local cultivation and uh, all the things he wasn't supposed to be doing. And all the things that kind of made it such, made it not uh, a, a national monopoly, and and really it was kind of like a tax farming relationship, right? It was like as long as you can get us our quota, um, you can behave how you want to behave. Um, so I think that's that's sort of where where the that argument comes in that you referenced earlier of like the 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 difference in China versus um, the Netherlands Indies or um, you know some of these other places Singapore is that transition from tax farming to um, a centralized monopoly was was like actually happened in those places and it and it didn't happen um, completely in China. Mm-hmm. I think I described his life as being fascinating and colorful, and I think I may have undersold him. Um, <laughs> um, I just love the idea of him with his metric tons of opium wherever he went. <laughs> Thank you for for recounting that. And as you know, some of the things you were mentioning, you know, all the different kinds of drugs that he's dealing in, not just the metric tons of opium. <laughs> um, this really speaks to something that's happening at the same time the rise of the global narcotic economy and the rise of morphine and cocaine and the trade in cocaine and users, you know, users of opium in China and across the world transitioning to pills and powders. Um, And this is something you get into in the next chapter of the book, chapter five, um, which looks at how opium from Fujian poured into the Netherlands, Indies, Singapore and the Strait Settlements and in the Philippines. And this is, you know, an entirely illicit trade. Um, and because of this, then this chapter is particularly interesting in terms of you know the sources that you're drawing from, um, because in many cases, and you make this explicit in particular moments throughout this chapter, um, that there aren't sources. <laughs> you know, there are some, but not many, or there's some things that are omitted, or these are sources that can't that um, uh, some of the things you're working with um, aren't 
um, they they reference you know cases that never show up in newspapers, for example. So there's there's some peculiarities here. So for example, you open this chapter with the example of some tax stamps um, found on prepared opium hidden in some cargo bound for Singapore, found in 1924, and you comment that these stamps are perhaps the only archival information on the institutional framework for the opium export industry in Xiamen. So with all of this, um, I'm wondering if you can talk about sources and the kinds of sources that you use in this chapter. So how were you able to sort of, you know, piece together and tell this largely, you know, under or un, in some cases, documented story? What, what did that look like for you? Oh, it's so messy. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it, it is just um, wildly frustrating uh, and also fun. So, so like I'll, uh, maybe just sort of talk through a couple examples of of how this works out. So one, one would be like the powder drugs being used in Fujian, right? The, uh, one of the sources I came across that I was really lucky to find. Um, in the Fujian Provincial Archives, I found a co- collection of like maybe twenty or thirty cases of. Um, people being arrested in Jinjiang County for m- morphine uh, crimes in like eight, 1938. Some like I, I didn't have a lot of actual like local government sources about opium in the early 20th century. So it was really some of the only kind of cases that I had. And in all of them, one of the examples I use there is like there's just an absurd amount of like varieties, right? Like. This uh, this woman is is arrested with like seven different types of morphine, and she had already flushed most of her drugs down the toilet by the time they got in there. Like, how many other kinds did she have before, and how does that make sense? So then, we're just like thinking about different, like, okay, how do we how do we how do we understand that market? Okay, so like, well, in her county, there's like a huge underground morphine factory, so that's probably helpful to her, um, but like. Shanghai, um, you know, there's there's morphine coming out of Shanghai. There's morphine coming out of North China. There's morphine coming out of Taiwan. So I sort of, you know, kind of piecing it together backwards in, in that way. It was like, how do you explain this variety of preparations that she has? The bigger mystery in this chapter, I think you were referencing before, is like the the League of Nations archives. So if you go to the League of Nations archives, or now you don't have to, they digitized almost everything I looked at. Um the if you look at confiscate if you like look for the word like amoy which is shaman and chandu which is like the southeast asian word for prepared opium paste amoy chandu shaman opium paste um in the netherlands indies like in indonesia in the philippines in singapore it's just constant it's like every year, major, massive confiscations of of opium from Xiamen. Um, some of it, like there's pictures of tins, you know, some of it like, you know, have have like county prohibition bureaus, you know, named on the tins and things like that. Others, others are kind of a little more mysterious. There's a bunch of them I found with like names of streets in Xiamen, you know, where the where the business's headquarters are and things like that. So a huge amount of, of evidence pointing to the city as like uh, a, a crucial export market place. Um, but like, if you then try to find anything about that in any sources from Xiamen, you're, you're, you're really out of luck. Um, nothing in the local, go- like no, no big, uh, you know, major arrests. The, the newspapers don't even mention it in Xiamen. And really it was like, you know, some of the best detail I got were, were Singapore newspapers, this is the Chinese language newspapers from Singapore, the Nanyang Shangba especially, um, had had like really detailed stuff about kind of like gossipy columns about like the opium business in Xiamen and things like that. So there there were like, you know, ways to kind of to kind of figure that out. But yeah, it's like I found one one single case and then those stamps you referenced is really all I've I've gotten on the Xiamen end. Like read reading through these, there's the Xiamen City Library is a really wonderful uh, local library in China, and they've digitized so much stuff from the Republican era. Um, and so they have like basically I don't know uh, a dozen local newspapers fully digitized for the 20s and 30s. 
Um, and they have lots of articles about opium and opium arrests. Uh, none of them are about the export of the drug to Southeast Asia, which, as I mentioned, the League of Nations sources would indicate was like a massive industry. So <laughs> trying to work that out and, and trying to, you know, it's a, it's a tough project for sort of like um, really strict empiricists, I think, because it's like if you're if you're so, so careful, uh, like I have to guess uh, a fair amount, like some the, this book is conjecture. And I think like I'm pretty clear um, where I'm guessing and where I'm not. Um, but like, I don't think you could tell some of these stories without, without having to like fill in some of those blanks, um, yourself. It's just not, it's not possible. So I, I try and be really clear where I'm doing that and where I'm not, but, um, I think that's kind of part of the fun. And I try to put, put that, um, on the pages of this chapter, right. To like give a little bit of that experience of the multi-archival, um, kind of mystery solving. And I think that that absolutely comes through um, in this chapter in particular. And I mean, it, it is you do mention it in other chapters where you have sources and where you don't or where, you know, things are things contradict or things, um, you know, uh, don't exact sources don't exactly overlap, but maybe they sit side by side. I think you are extremely clear throughout this book and more so in this particular chapter um, about that. And of course, none of this is really helped by, um, you know, some of the things that some of the techniques um, that are being implemented by people um, to, you know, hide their 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 vast stashes of opium. Or you you talk about in this chapter in particular, um, uh, I think um, code words. So you talk about, you know, <laughs> there, you I cannot remember the the source you're drawing from, but there's a discussion of, um, you know, when cabling um, n- use cheese for cocaine and margarine for morphia. So there's code words being used that I'm sure just make everything all the more difficult then trying to <laughs> uncover um, what is happening, right? And and what it what is a drug and what isn't and what is moving and what is not. No, and the and the biggest the major caveat to everything. And somebody said this to me very early on in my research. And this is like, you know, you're like only studying the people who are incompetent, right? Like incompetent or unlucky, right? Like the ones who got caught. Um, the people who like really succeeded uh, didn't get caught, right? Like we don't know their names. And that was by design. Um, so, so it is like, I don't think it's totally true. I think I found some, some major players along the way, but like it, it, it's sobering to think about how much um, people were able to keep secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that is that really speaks to again going back to something we touched on earlier, the dynamism. And of course, then this brings us actually this you know brings to my mind at least, but I'll move us there as well <laughs> to chapter six, where we see an interesting new way um, that people are using sort of legal frameworks um, to their benefit. Right, this is how I will segue us here, um, because chapter six. Um, touches on the use of extraterritoriality. Um, and you point out here that, you know, extraterritoriality um, as a policy, it's something that has really been used and pointed to and spoken of um, in terms of China's victimization at the hands of outside imperial powers. Um, because extraterritoriality was used and served as a shield for people to commit drug crimes. Um, but Interestingly, this chapter sort of explores the, and I'll quote, history of extraterritoriality from the perspective of the Chinese people who claimed it. Um, So here you're really looking at people and groups of people who obtained Taiwanese registration and who were therefore Japanese citizens. Um, So could you touch on a little bit sort of, you know, why were people doing this and how did it benefit them as it relates to opium and, and, you know, drugs, I suppose? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a story that goes back a long way, right? It goes back to the first opium war and the opening of those ports. Mentioned, you know, what makes Fujian unique, and, it, and part of it's its connection to Southeast Asia. Five years after the ports are opened, um, British consuls and Qing government officials are both realizing that that there can be Chinese people claiming British citizenship, like they didn't anticipate it, right? They didn't see it coming. Um, and they're really confused and not sure about what they should do with these people who are, you know, I was born in Singapore, right? And like, yeah, I dress in the Qing fashion and like, I don't really speak English and I, I only speak the Fujian, the Southern Fujian dialect, but like I, I have the British papers, right? I'm British. Um, 
and so that goes that goes back a long way and and I talk about this a little bit in the book. The British um, uh, consuls tended to be fairly conservative in in their approach to kind of bringing, uh, gi- giving protection um, to uh, people from um, you know Singapore and, and Malaysia who who had uh, Fujini's ancestry and things like that. Um, but there's always you know a few dozen registered at the consulate in any, at any given moment, and then. Um, after Japan took over Taiwan in um, 1895, the, it created this kind of uh, situation where, well, what, you know, what about all the Fujinese people who go back and forth? Um, what about all the people, um, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're coming from Taiwan, if you've been born in Taiwan and, you, and then you return to like work in Xiamen, are you, are you Japanese? Um, and then are you under Japanese protection in Xiamen? And the Japanese consuls and, and you know, the, I'm sort of tip of the iceberg here. There's some really amazing new scholarship on this. Seiji Shirane's new book, Imperial Gateway, um, a plug. And, and James Gary and Chun um, is, is writing a book also on this sort of region and this kind of um, phenomenon. Right. So the, the floodgates kind of opened for people to claim Japanese protection and really quickly it emerged that like it could be advantageous in different ways. There's lineage feuds that are happening in the countryside and, and, you know, um, the lawsuits that come out of it, like people realize that it's advantageous to have the Japanese consul um, on your side and things like that. So, so various people figure out in different ways, kind of how that it might be advantageous to be like Japanese in in China, even though here again, it's kind of coming up against the assumptions I had, which is that like Japan, you know, if we're talking about the 1930s, like this is the the sort of the enemy in this moment of heightened nationalism. Like how can people be voluntarily just like choosing to be Japanese? And I, there's just something different in the air. Like, I don't know. People don't seem to be um, hung up on that in coastal Southern Fujian. And you have, by the 1930s, 30,000, 40,000 people, um, you know, uh, half of whom might be legitimately registered, the other half of whom, you know, could register maybe, came from Taiwan or alternatively had never been to Taiwan, but like rented um, someone else's registration or were just just put up a sign in front of their house that said they're Japanese um, that looks like the other signs. Like uh, there's all kinds of ways people, you know, the police aren't going to come in um, if you have a sign like that hanging in front of your house, because because they'll get in trouble, um, it's not worth not worth it to them. Uh, so you have this this kind of um, yeah large scale uh, demographic <laughs> transformation. I don't know exactly how to describe it, right? Where people kind of are registering as 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 Taiwanese, and and within the story of the opium business, it's it's one of the things that's kind of really interesting to me is the how they kind of over the course of really kind of starting maybe 1915 and completing by 1930 or so, they really take over Xiamen, um, people with Taiwanese registration, some of whom seem to have not even ever been to Taiwan, others of whom were, were born in Taiwan. Um, it's a mix of people. Um, but like the, for example, that's, that city changed leadership repeatedly, right? There's all these transitions of, you know, different naval authorities running the city or, um, uh, you know, various warlords taking over. And and what I noticed was like every every new um, iteration of the local government uh, was more and more likely to partner with these Taiwanese figures, um, such that by the 1930s, like all the opium prohibition bureaus, the poppy tax collection. And, and like, um, here's where some of these other books are probably going to tell a bigger story even than me. Like I have some of these opium guys, um, for example, like filling in um, the urban landscape of Xiamen, the, the island of Xiamen uh, changed dramatically in the early 20th century. There was, it used to look like Pac-Man, like with an open mouth. And now it's a, a, a full circle, basically, with a lake in the middle. Um, and the guy who did that was was one of these um, directors of opium prohibition bureaus and heads of construction companies and things like that. And he was Taiwanese. You were mentioning, um, you know, the 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 how strange it might initially seem, or at least you know, knowing what we know about this period of time, for so many people to you know voluntarily become 
um, you know, uh, Taiwanese and, and in turn Japanese citizen. And you you point out in the book that uh, making money for many people probably felt like a filial and untreasonous goal. So in the context <laughs> and what what that citizenship, what that registration might offer them, eh, <laughs> you you explore the book how you know probably made a little bit of sense. <laughs> Yeah, I really, I really think that. I, I don't think, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't think people had that too big of a problem with it a lot of times. And yeah, there's a, you know, a, a classic one uh, that, that I turn to in the book of like, you know, a family where one guy works for the Kuomintang and the other guy works for the Japanese and they work together to like sell opium and smuggled kerosene and sugar and just like whatever they can do. And they're, you know, brothers, <laughs> like not a not a problem um that the governments they work for are at war with each other or it's actually advantageous in their case right Um, they used it to their favor um with that and with that story and i mean there's so many stories in this book as you just mentioned each each we've touched on a few but certainly not all um and This, though, then comes, brings us to the conclusion of your book, um, where you note that stories like this about people who sell illegal drugs and cultivate relationships with the government are likely familiar to the reader. Um, And you touch on here in the conclusion some of the insights from the contemporary world that apply to the relationship between opium and capitalism in particular um, in, you know, in the 19th and early 20th century in China. Um, But in your conclusion, it's a really intriguing conclusion that points in different directions of comparison and, you know, um, uh, hints at some future work that someone might want to do in different aspects. Um, But as a way of sort of closing us out with this, is there anything in particular that you want to highlight for listeners here, aspects of the book or points of comparison that we haven't had a chance to talk about, for example, or anything that we've sort of uh, missed or that I haven't asked about? Is there anything that you want to sort of emphasize here? Um, Well, maybe I'll run with a little bit of the stuff from the conclusion that you sort Mm -hmm. of glossed on a little bit, you know, thinking about, um, you know, one of the things I guess I, as I was sort of preparing for that conclusion, I really wanted to sort of bring the story into the present day and think about, you know, how this might, you know, help us think through uh, various things that happen, you know, in the world around us, whether it's, whether it's, um, you know, Central South America, um, you know, Afghanistan, um, uh, Southeast Asia, Golden Triangle, right? The, sort of drug hotspots in the world and, and things like that. And, you know, one of the things that I guess I, um, I noticed was that there's not a lot of consensus, right? It's like, it's like with the word capitalism, right? You like ask people to start defining it and like it, 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 it throws people into a bit of a tizzy and like, you, you know, we're talking past each other or something. I think the same thing's true with, with narco capitalism to the extent that like defining, defining the role of the state seems to kind of obsess theorists of, of this, but also it's like, to me, that's where, that's where the question's interesting, like that the role of the state vis-a-vis kind of drug business, that it is fluid and shifts. And like that, that storyline of like how that changes and the dynamics of it is, is sort of like what's interesting and where the grounds for comparison are. So, so like, you know, part of, I think what I was trying to say in the, in the conclusion there and, and, and as I've been thinking this through is like, like the value is not like in creating like a um, a taxonomy. It's it's in like exploring the the alternatives or something like that. Sounds like nonsense. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, I maybe talk myself into a corner here. <laughs> no, not at all. And I think in terms of you know thinking about this book as a whole and you know the shifting landscape and the changing relationship between um, the state and. Um, illicit or non-illicit um, drug sellers, um, tax farmers, and whatnot. I think that really speaks actually to the book as a whole and what what this book really does. And going back to your your description of the book is you know sort of filling in the gaps and charting the changes and and charting this long history, um, not reducing it down to you know single moments, um, but looking at the in between um, and the people in between. I think that's a, a actually a great place to sort of leave our discussion of this book. Um, 
because we've come to the end of our conversation and the end of your book. So my last question, as always on the podcast, is what are you working on next? And I think you might, as you alluded to earlier, continue, you might still be working on Xiamen, <laughs> but could you, could you talk a little bit about what, what is inspiring you at the moment? Yeah, um, I've been kind of obsessive with the primary sources the last week or so. I had the luxury of having the kids go back to school before our semester started. Um, so I'm uh, I'm working on a, a new project about the Small Sword Society uprising, 1853, um, and it's and it comes out of the research for this. Um, you know, in part, this the story we were just telling about. Uh, you know, this Japanese citizenship, kind of the origins of that being in the in the 1840s and 1850s. Well, the, the small sword societies, this kind of secret society in Xiamen, the, that um, a guy who was a, a comprador um, from Singapore uh, working for the Jardine Matheson Company was, was kind of executed by the local Xiamen government. And there's this question of like, it precipitated the, the original kind of conversation about like, are they British or are they Chinese, right? The, this group of people and how do we do that? So it's a story kind of about the origins of flexible citizenship, right? Um, people who kind of had a really measurable historical agency, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, like um, neither the British consuls nor the Qing officials realized the consequences of this this extraterritoriality and citizenship rule right that like that we'd have people who were who 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 both officials were going to be viewing as chinese being claiming that they're british right and and what kind of problems might emerge from that and the the aftermath of that arrest and that that initial execution is two years later um a bunch of the kind of surrounding counties um, uh, of, of Xiamen had this major uprising. And so they took over Xiamen for six months. They took over Zhangzhou nearby. And about halfway through that, a semi-connected group also took over Shanghai for 17 months. Um, and there was also a, another connected group in Taiwan. Um, so, so really kind of thinking about this as like a, um, like a diasporic revolution, right? At this moment of kind of transformations and concepts of citizenship and things like that, right? That was an issue crucially important to the leadership of this organization, kind of coming from Southeast Asia and claiming British citizenship in China. Um, uh, you know, what, what did they want <laughs> is, is the question I'm going into the research with. Like, what, 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 did, what did the small sources say? Like, what were they trying to achieve in this kind of quest for regional sovereignty on the, on the Chinese coast in, in the 1850s? I think that sounds like a wonderful question to sort of follow in um, as, as someone who, who uh, constantly deals with the frustration of my historical actors not telling me what they wanted explicitly. <laughs> um, so uh, if only. Uh, so best of luck with that, Peter. I, I look forward to hearing and reading about that work in the future. Um, and thank you again for taking the time to talk with me about this work. Thank you, Sarah. It was my pleasure.